Hello and welcome to this episode of Tomorrow with me, Nick Hewer, and Allianz. In this series, we're exploring the global trends that will affect and shape businesses and whole industries in the years and decades to come. We want to discuss how such trends will influence businesses, identify the risks they bring and the opportunities they present. Today, we're focusing on the growth of AI, a subject that excites many but worries many others, especially in the business world. AI already touches many aspects of our lives, from smart metering in our homes, automated driver assist in our vehicles, and voice activation on smartphones. If some reports are to be believed, the future could see robotic doctors carrying out diagnosis and treatment in hospitals, autonomous vehicles delivering shopping to your front door, and your financial services being managed entirely by computer instead of a human. A report issued by PwC in 2017 suggested that AI could contribute up to $15.7 trillion to the global economy in 2030. That's more than the current output of China and India combined. So should businesses embrace this fast-growing technology or be fearful about its capability to take all our jobs? Joining me today to discuss this, Adam Rates is the Head of Strategy and Architecture at Allianz. Matt Harvey is the Director of Intellectual Property at law firm Gowling WLG. And Paul Ryan, who runs IBM Watson Artificial Intelligence for the UK and Ireland. So let me turn first of all to Adam. Adam, AI, artificial intelligence, banded around, but exactly what is it and how is it currently being used? Well, I think the important thing to remember is the term AI is a bit like the term vehicle. It covers a huge range of things, a huge set of technologies and capabilities from natural language processing to image recognition to neural networks to algorithm processing. So actually what, what we're talking about is a, a set, set of quite complex capabilities in, in the computer world. But the thing that makes it stand out is in old-style computing, if you like, what you had to do is program everything and think about what you might do and how it might work. So if you think of a postcode, think about the variabilities that you have in a postcode. If you write a piece of computer code to read a postcode, then you have to think about all of those variabilities. For an AI, you effectively train it on the outcome. So let's think of a picture processing you want to, the AI to learn what a wheel looks like on a car. You show it lots and lots and lots and lots of pictures of wheels, and eventually its probability of recognising wheel goes up and up and up and up. If you're of a mathematical vent, that's called vector geometry. So when you throw out a picture, it says, I'm 99% sure that's a wheel, I'm 80% sure that's a wheel. What that means is two things. First of all, you need a level of computing power and you need a level of data storage. So 10,000 pictures, 20,000 pictures, and the machine will get to about 80% of understanding. But the thing is, that's quicker than thinking about how you would write the definition of a wheel for each of those photographs. So AI is about using lots of data and lots of processing power to think about what the outcome is that you want and training the machine to do that. Got it. I mean, as a lawyer, I would make a, a stark uh, distinction between what's called an expert system, which has always been part of the sort of AI universe, where you sit down with an expert, let's say it's a lawyer or a doctor, you figure out their thought processes and you 
turn that into computer code so it will follow their logic. But in the last five to seven years, because of processing power, when we talk about artificial intelligence, certainly in the press, we're really talking about machine learning, which is what you've been describing, where you take a training set and, and, you, and the computer itself figures out how to get from A to B. Got it, Matt. And, but it all depends on big, big, big increasingly huge data in order to, you know, to get you to that, you know, the wheel um, um, idea that you were proposing. Yes, that's, that's correct. But the interesting thing is why, why, this is why this is so relevant now. And if you go back at looking computing over the last 20 odd years, I went, I went to a, an IT exhibition the other day and they gave me a one gig data stick for free. If I'd bought that in 1980, I wouldn't have got much change out of a million US dollars. Yeah. So that just shows you how data storage has become more important and more relevant and how possible it is to do this. Okay, what about the uses then? You gave us the example of the wheel. You know, yeah. how is it being used? And increasingly, what is the most popular uh, So fr- from a customer endpoint view, the sorts of things that you're, we're starting to see are chatbots, so you, you phone up and have a conversation with, uh, 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 you know, like Siri or Cortana, those sorts of things. The other areas that you start to see are the sorts of things that we talked about a moment ago in terms of specialist systems. So can I recognise the damage on a car? Can I recognise faces? It's yeah. those sorts of areas that you're starting to see it being used in practice rather than in the theory. All right. So when I go through the um, the uh, passport control at Stansted, for instance, that sort so I of take thing. my specs off and put my feet on that thing. Yes, that's AI. Yeah. Uh, yes, at, at the at the easier end of the AI spectrum. Yes. All right. I think I think as a consumer, another key point is just trying to navigate the vast world of content and information. Hmm. And so AI enables search. So I can now use Shazam to search for a song just by its sound. But equally, I can now point my camera if I use Blipper, for example, at any make of car uh, manufactured since 2000, as long as it's going less than 50 miles an hour, it will accurately recognise it for me. Yeah. Should we just turn now to Paul? Paul Ryan, who uh, runs in the UK and Ireland, IBM Watson. Now, tell us a little bit about this extraordinary organisation, IBM Watson. So what we've built with Watson is the artificial intelligence platform for businesses and for professionals. This is a system that understands the world and interacts like humans do. So it has senses, it understands language, and it learns and experiences. And that means it gets expression. It can see and it can read and it can hear. And Watson senses emotion and sentiment, which means it can shine a light on how we feel about things. And that offers very, very interesting and new ways to interact. And Watson makes sense of vast amounts of unstructured data, which is images, videos, language, sensor information, as well as company data that lives behind the corporate firewall. And it can turn all of that into insights that improve decision making to make people better at the work that they do and to provide competitive advantage. Watson represents cognitive computing and it came from the recognition that the rigidity of programmable systems, that's going to struggle to keep pace with the volume and the variety of data that's in the world today. And 80% of that data is very much invisible to computers because it's images, it's social media, it's it's books and videos. So Watson came from the need to make sense of all of this and the aspiration to have a technology that learns and that you train rather than program because that makes it available to more people to solve more problems. And which sector do you think is is, uh, moving fastest? 
with IBM Watson. Healthcare, I think, is a, is a huge area. Uh, so today, certainly, Watson is huge in healthcare. It's also in financial services, uh, insurance, travel, retail and governments. So I really don't know of an industry it won't uh, impact. All right, but healthcare certainly. And, and insurance, indeed. Uh, Matt? Well, I was going to say that there, there are sort of two classes of changes that AI will bring to insurance. One is the generic stuff that any business can benefit from. So any business looks at its data and it's trying to recommend products to customers. And you group customers according to their nearest neighbours and you say, well, this person wanted this product, this person's probably likely to want the same product. So when you're selling a, an insurance product, you can identify the right time to contact a customer, uh, proper parallel products, and you sure. sell more. But yeah. with insurance in particular, the really interesting points are one, touchless processing. So I, I understand that insurance at the moment involves a lot of people looking at claims, assessing claims. And if you can automate that, you can save a lot of money. And medical records is a classic example. If you can get AI to to go through reams of medical uh, reports to assess a claim mm. or, or to identify the fingerprints of fraud, which is estimated to be worth $40 billion a year, you can save a lot of money. Yeah. Now, I, I get the healthcare, and I read, I read um, uh, Paul's papers before coming on, and um, healthcare is perfect, you know? And actually, if I, as a consumer, as a patient, if you like, I'm informed that the diagnosis has been arrived at by a series of, uh, of uh, artificial intelligence systems, that's fine by me, because actually there was a trillion tons of it, all right, and it got to me in 30 seconds. That's great, and I believe it. But let's go back to the insurance industry, shall we? Now then, Adam, Adam, how prepared for these changes is the industry, and will AI take so many jobs in the sector? Oh, that's quite a complex question. So, so I, think, I think we touched a, mo- a moment ago on the on the value of the customer interaction. So for, for customer insurance terms, you need to think about brokers as well as end retail customers um, and, and the operational cost. There's, there's also an influence in the underwriting, pricing and financial reserving space as well, where processing large amounts of data very well makes an improvement there. So I think that, that's worth noting. It's not just in terms of the customer interaction. Will, will AI take jobs away I, th- I think if you believe the papers then we're we're all going to be sitting on the bahamas in the bahamas on deck chairs whilst machines do all our work i don't think that's necessarily true i think when we were talking about machine learning earlier what you still need is a level of expertise to interpret the outcome mm. so when you're talking about the the machine giving you your medical diagnosis probably what you want is the machine augmenting the information about the diagnosis i'm not sure you'd want the machine to give you the diagnosis or to interact with you immediately after the diagnosis that that starts to impinge on the human world there and that level of interaction so i think what you'll see is machines improving the information available and what you'll see is is human beings involved in that process and i think you'll increasingly lean on expertise in that space will machines replace basic um, mechanistic processes, reconciliation, those sorts of things? Yes, absolutely. So I think what you'll see is not swathes of the job being lost, but the shape of the job market changing. What about the skills gap? You sort of hinted at that. Yeah, so, so I think that's an, interest, that's an interesting challenge because I think, so if you, if you, ta- if you take the sort of theoretical idea of, of underwriting, so you, you decide that a machine is going to do lots of underwriting um, and in five, ten years' time you have a machine doing underwriting. And when we talked a bit earlier about machine learning and the expert input, you need somebody to train the machine in what the outcomes are and in good underwriting. 
if you have machines doing all of your underwriting, where do your experts come from? And I think that the same applies to the medical profession, to, to the legal profession, where we've got machines going through case law. Um, so I think you do have a challenge there. I think the other interesting challenge, and you talked about it a moment ago, is in the trust space. How do we as individual normal people interact with machines and what do we understand about it? There's an awful lot of brokers listening to this. Yes. What's going to happen to them? I I think that fits very nicely into the expert and and the medical space. So a broker's role is to interact with their customer, to understand the customer needs, and to to go away and find the appropriate set of covers and value and and, financial coverage for the the problems that they have. The The more capabilities and technologies they have to help them peruse the market, balance off, provide expert insight the better that relationship with the customer is going to be. And also, you know, let's not get, you know, broker, broker markets are about relationship with the customer. One thing machines are not particularly good at is relationships. Now, Paul, can you come in on that? I think to the, to the question about jobs, the, the broker example is, is a really good one. When we think about IBM Watson, we use the term AI to mean augmenting intelligence. So we see cognitive computing as a collaboration between man and machine. So in that sense, for the broker... Yes, there is some work that can be automated, but this is about being the best broker and giving that broker the, the, the tools that connect them and connect them to the customer so they understand the right offer at the right time and, and figure out the best way to interact based on, on yes, data ma'am. and history. Well, I mean, let, let's be a little bit more frightening. Uh, uh, Accenture did a survey and found that 74% of consumers would be happy to get computer-generated insurance advice. There are already areas of insurance, particularly car insurance, which are already commoditized to the extent that people are buying it through a website. They're not having any human interaction Mm. in order to choose their insurance. And there are disruptive entrants in the US who have investment in the tens of millions um, who are offering insurance cover within 90 seconds and a payout within three minutes. And with zero deductions. Is this so you, lemonade you're talking about? It was indeed. And they're saying you could claim for a pair of headphones or flip-flops. And all of that is predicated on there being no human involved in, in settling those claims. Uh, you're th- getting very animated there. No, I, th- I, think, and I, th- I think you're absolutely correct. But what you're primarily talking about there is, is, is the end customer retail market. When you start to move into commercial insurance, what in insurance land we would call mid-corporate, mm. where you're talking about maybe multi-site multi-location, multi-vehicle, multi-cover type options, then it becomes a little bit more complicated. So, you know, motor insurance is relatively straightforward to write. There's there's only a, you know, there's a very few sets of criteria. You know, how old is the driver? How old is the car? Where do they live? Where is it kept? Those sorts of things. When you talk about commercial insurance, then you're into maybe thousands of factors that you need to take into account. So also, for instance, wearables, but wearables in health. Yeah. What do you reckon about that, Matt? I mean, you can uh, pretty much be uh, sheathed in electronic <laughs> gear that can warn you about almost anything. Yeah, so when we talk about AI, there's a lot of overlap with smart technology generally because AI is about understanding data and telematics wearables is all about collecting vast mm. amounts of data. And in the healthcare yeah. uh, sector, the idea is if if, if you wear a, a Fitbit or other, or other monitoring uh, 
products on your body, it will encourage general fitness, and the hope is that will diminish chronic conditions such as heart disease. And these chronic conditions account for maybe three quarters of the total healthcare spend. So if you can make the public more healthy in this way, you reduce healthcare costs. But also, you can identify sleep problems, depression, and the like through these through this equipment. And also, if you have a health claim and you've gone into hospital and and an insurer is paying out for your treatment, if you can then send a patient home by using a wearable so it can monitor their heart rate, etc., you can save on the cost of a hospital bed for a night, which is about £400 a night. And also you can have happier patients because they're allowed to go home. For sure. I think there's an important thing to talk about in terms of predictives as well. So we talked about telematics boxes and being able to predict a, a driver's future driving habits based on their past driving habits. In the health market, there's an, there's an important thing as well. So we talked about sending a patient home. Most of us are creatures of habit. We get up at sort of the same time. And actually, if you, if you have a predictive piece and you've sent patient X home and and the device can then spot that they haven't made their cup of tea at the normal time or they haven't switched their lights off at the normal time, there's something wrong. So there's that level of care that goes with that predictive ability as well. And, and as Watson, um, Watson has been very successful at spotting things like depression and getting ahead of that because it can see changes in that are very, very subtle in how people narrate themselves in the world. So you can help people before something even becomes a problem. So you've got the, the empirical that's very visible because it's about data or it's about a visit to the doctor but you've also got the the softer kind of longer term interaction and i think the final part of that is effectively the behavioral change so we you know a a fitbit or other similar device and a Mm. telematics box actually encourages a proportion of the people using them to change their behavior you know telematics have proven to improve driving skills and reduce accident levels fitbits do have an impact on people's health so, so there's an element of sort of positivity that comes from that as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, one's very own blood pressure monitor, of course. Such an important part of every household. Now, come on, what about cost? Nobody's talked about cost. What are the cost implications of using AI in this area? I think there's an interesting point. I mean, you know, there's, there's a point here where AI is no different to anything else in the sense that, you know, I work for Alliance. It's a large organisation. We, we have a budget for changing things. Whatever we do to change things has to pay back. So artificial intelligence or particular functions in that space sit in that. What benefit is it going to drive? How much is it going to cost? Does that payback happen in the right sort of time period to make it justifiable to you know my boss and his boss and so on? Matt, you're a lawyer, and going to law is an expensive old business. Going to you know litigation is an expensive business. Very high value. Are you guys? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Are you guys uh, getting involved in AI? Yeah, absolutely. And well, to give you a very dramatic example, J.P. Morgan Chase uh, introduced a system to review commercial loan contracts, and they claim that. Work that used to take loan officers 360,000 hours can now be done in a few seconds, which sounds like a lot of savings. And certainly a lot of the more menial work in the law uh, is looking to be automated. So things like identifying problematic clauses in a contract automatically and then having a more senior lawyer be able to look at it efficiently. But what I will say is I'm a litigator and we have had what's called disclosure review tools, which use AI, for decades now to help you go through a mountain of documents and find out what's relevant. And it just means you become more ambitious of what you can do with the budget you had. And it hasn't actually changed the cost of litigation. I think there's I think there's a there's a part here where we, you know we're talking about a particular technology but but actually we're talking about technology change that happens all the time you know you, you wouldn't do adding up without a calculator now mm. but we, you know if you go if you go back you know a few years you, you wouldn't dream of using a calculator now calculators 
you know, a, a common place. You just have to think about how you do it differently. You go, you go to your favourite supermarket. You can go through an automatic checkout. You don't have to speak to a person. It's just a level of technology change, and you just you look at how you're going to absorb it and drive benefit from it and use those areas that you're going to. So that sort of begs the question: Who can afford to ignore AI then? I, I think in business, and I guess there's nobody. But anyway, well, I think if you're if you're running a business, then you know your role in a business is to look at where you can improve your costs, where you can improve your customer experience, you know, where you can improve your, your penetration of a market. So you you can't ignore this just as you can't ignore a whole range of other things. There was a study by MIT that said that 85 percent of executives believe that AI will allow their companies to obtain or sustain a competitive advantage. Yeah. So I think it will be the minority that choose not to implement or build something around artificial intelligence. If you want to, if you want to be you know, competitive, you've got to stick with it. What are the risks then? Who's going to talk about the risks that come with AI? Oh, I think, I think it's the lawyer's job, isn't it, to talk about the risks? <laughs> oh, come on, <laughs> man. Fine, fine. <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's a huge list, I'm afraid. So on a practical level, it's the issue of uh, trust. So on the one side, chatbots putting people off, and on the other side, excessive trust. So we've had people literally die because they follow their sat-nav slavishly because they believe the computer too readily. Mm. Then we've got the issue that AI, particularly machine learning, it's an algorithm generated by a computer, which is just a pile of numbers. So if you want to roll back the clock and figure out what went wrong, no one can really unpick it. You can't audit what happened, which means from a legal point of view, unpicking who's liable can be very difficult. Then you can have a related issue, dramatic failures, such as flash crashes in the stock market. Mm. And that's when a single AI is remorselessly following its programming, or when you have an unforeseen interaction between two AIs. And then I would also add cybersecurity. AI is now controlling or will control maybe autonomous vehicles. It may control aspects of our important infrastructure. And you've got a risk of really catastrophic failures, which, which the insurance market may have to pay for. And then on the social side, you've got the power of the incumbents. If data is the new oil and Google has so much data, how does anyone actually compete with them? Are you coming in on this, Adam? Yeah, I, th I think one of the challenges here is, is I think all those points are very valid, very valid indeed. I think one of the challenges here is this is a very fast-moving space and the law notoriously isn't that quick. So I think there'll always be a bit of a lag. So I think I think one, one of the, the things we talked about a bit earlier was, was trust. And I don't think it's just about protecting the data. It is absolutely about protecting the data but one of the things we need to think about is what are we doing with this that is to the benefit of the customer and if, if we're doing things that are not to the benefit of the customer that's not the right thing to be doing and I, and I think that that trust that ethical code that sort of moral balance is really important well that brings us really into the impact on the consumer who's going to take up the the challenge of explaining or telling us about the public's perception of ai who's got to steer on that I, th I think so. I think I think it's going to be quite interesting. I I think you know, the the public tend to so gen generic term. I think as we become more familiar with technology, they be they become part of everyday life. We talked a bit earlier about sat navs leading to some unfortunate consequences in their early days. Now, I, nobody goes anywhere in their car without switching a sat nav on, even if it's to the corner shop. And I think we are unfamiliar with some of this technology. We will be uncomfortable around it. But as we become more familiar interacting with chatbots, as we become more familiar with being told that this decision was made or informed by an AI, we will become more inured to it and more relaxed about it over yeah. time. It's just an inevitability. That's part of human nature. And Adam, you were talking about, well, you know, let AI deal with the diagnosis, but the doctor's going to tell you. I think maybe for a while that's true, but after a while... 
we'll, you know, we're very happy to hear directly from uh, the chatbot or whatever it's called. But the I, say, bot. I think you might be right. You might want to hear it from the chatbot. You wouldn't want the necessary for the chatbot to be your only interaction. Mm. I think you will want, you know, if you have a serious diagnosis, you're going to want another human being to interact and relate to. You don't just want a chatbot to talk to. The, yeah, things vary. Obviously. Yes, but we would chip. see. We would see Watson as a tool to support the decision process that the clinician goes through. So helping them access the thousands of reports, helping them find the, the individual that's most like the patient, but still very much the clinician making the decision and making the diagnosis just based on a tool that help them get to a better set of evidence. Um, I, I think Matt was talking earlier on about the use of AI in the legal profession. And I think you hinted at a point that perhaps the costs wouldn't change. The well, charges wouldn't change. I, I, what I, about insurance? Is that, is, that, is that true? The way we buy insurance will change. Will the cost change as a result? I, I think with all these things, you're, talk, you're talking about a, a ways of getting more efficient and staying competitive. So everything, everything an insurance company does changes the cost. Which we're trying to drive down costs all the time. Mm. I think if you look at the cost of motor insurance over time, if you look at the cost of commercial insurance over time, I, th- I think you you see that you see that efficiency coming through. The, the dream that, the dream is surely that with telematics, uh, maybe all objects being smart, if something gets lost or selling, the claim will just be processed. Yes, you you will not even ever contact your insurer you'll just get the money and you can start to see that in things like travel insurance where if you have a flight delay there are some insurers already that will automatically pay out your flight delay because it's it's receiving data from the airline it knows it's been delayed it's you've hit a particular point in the contract it pays automatically so so i think this is about meeting your customer where she wants to interact if she wants to pick up the phone or call into a branch or interact through a conversational natural language system and that mirrors the way that we like to use our phone often we spend more time jabbing messages into our smartphones and the problem of making a high quality channel available that would give your customers the same experience that they would get through one of your skilled contact center staff is not a trivial one to solve adam earlier on you said we're talking here about business right but if there is no benefit to the consumer then we're doing the wrong thing yeah surely we're offering people the in business speed and cost saving giving them a competitive edge now where does the consumer the end user benefit in all this well I, th- I think i think paul made a very good point it's about offering the consumer what it is they want and if they want to pick up a phone and talk to a person that's one thing if they want a quick query answered by a chatbot so i had to phone my i had to phone my bank the other day to answer to find out how to do something it was a very straightforward inquiry it took me a while to get through the person was able to answer it in about 30 seconds if there was a chatbot interaction available, I could have just asked the machine. So, so it's about how, how I would like to deal with that organisation or that service mm-hmm. and the most efficient way for the organisation to answer and respond and service that inquiry. So, so it is, it, it, that, is, that is really important because effectively we're, we're in the market of selling things to customers. Sure. If they don't like it and don't enjoy the experience, they're not going to buy things. It's an interesting point. I mean, it, there's a lot of focus on, on chatbots in particular. And to give you a sense of how important people feel it is, Amazon's Alexa 
isn't very conversational at the moment and can only handle basic queries. And that part of their prize, there's a million dollar award if you can come up with a with an AI which can converse coherently and engagingly with humans on popular topics for 20 minutes. And no one's anywhere near winning that. But I actually think what we've said today is I think chatbots may in fact be the wrong direction. People don't want necessarily to speak to their insurers ever. They want it all to be frictionless. They want to do it through a text message. They want to be able to track progress automatically so in that sense that it's a we think of this as digital messaging rather than a chatbot and it's meeting the client down whatever channel they want if that's a text message if that's email and that's an important decision to make sure you choose an ai that's not just providing you a point chatbot you're dead right about the interactions i think it was a stat in the other day that said something like 20 percent of conversations with siri and alexa involve swear words so, so the idea that you know we're, you're having a positive interaction there, I think we're a bit away from that. And Matt, well, one of the great commentators on AI, Pedro Domingos, actually predicts that we will have our own individual AIs, our own virtual uh, people, who will negotiate with the insurer's AI or the job app or the, or the employer's AI, and it will it will settle the parameters for the discussion, and then you as a person will only be involved once your AI has a deal you like. Can I have one to deal with HMRC? Yeah. That'd be Brilliant. awesome, wouldn't it? <laughs> Brilliant. All right, just one final thing. I'm a lot older than you guys, and I'm not in the, in the business. And when I got involved, was asked to sort of have a look at all this, I felt it was a dismal sort of... Um, area slightly worried i suppose i i read the eagle when i was a kid and was slightly frightened now am i being ridiculous come on adam i think i think it'd be rude to say yes but yes yes i, I think there's an only two answers there i think uh, i have 11 year old you look at how easily she adapts to technology yeah. i don't i don't think she has the same fears that you know the generation of, of my mother has at the same time you, you think if, art, if if autonomous cars were available now, how much easier her life would be? What about Matt? Well, I do think that the promise of frictionless insurance and frictionless business uh, interactions generally is is very uh, very appealing. But we do have to make sure that the efficiency with which I can be measured up for medical insurance doesn't create a, a society of haves and haves not people who just cannot be insured. Uh, there's also the issue of the singularity when the machines turn on us, of course, which I think is fantasy, and also the, the, the looming threat of mass unemployment, which is leading to another form of insurance, apocalypse insurance, where mm-hmm. the hyper-rich are buying self-sufficient resorts where they can have uh, armed guards keeping out the unemployed masses. Yeah, we haven't talked about the military, but we'll pass on for a second there's a, there's there. There's an economic Paul. fallacy there, isn't there? <laughs> the jobs that uh, the graduates who work for me in Watson do today are far, far more interesting than the job that I had in information technology when I graduated in 2000. So I think the the job landscape gets much, much more interesting and we'll continue to find new and interesting things for people to do that they'll enjoy. I think there's a, there's a nice IBM stat, isn't there, that says something like 90% of the jobs that will exist in 10 years' time don't exist now. Absolutely. I can't remember Absolutely. the exact numbers, but it's a nice idea. That brings this episode to an end, but please... Do subscribe to the series through your podcast app. That way, you'll be sure of never missing an episode, and we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review too. We'll be back to explore another major global trend in the next episode of Tomorrow. In the meantime, from me, Nick Hewer, it's goodbye.